This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Welcome back to another week of Trashy Divorces. Hi, friends. Welcome back. I'm Alicia. I'm Stacy. We're excited to see you. This week, we can't help falling in love with some trashy divorces. A classic song title by Elvis this week for our episode title. Yep, yep, yep. Um, which seemed to fit, because only fools rush in. <laughs> yeah, and there's a good musical tie, too, because um, I have the trashy divorce, the trashy marriage, the trashy sex tape of Tommy Lee and Pamela Anderson. I was not prepared for that story. I was not actually prepared to discover that story either. It was amazing. <laughs> I really need to get better at my clues this week. Mm. I'm bringing you the four mm. divorces of the daughter of Elvis, Lisa Marie Presley, including both Michael Jackson and Nick Cage. It was a hell of a tale. Yes. Hell of a tale. Before we get started on the episode, whoa. We got some big shout outs to give to Patreon. We definitely this week do. on Patreon was a whole celebration of Anne Boleyn. I covered It was her death week. It was her death week. Four hundred and eighty eight years ago or whatever. Four hundred and eighty four. Sorry. I did a dirty digs on Heber Castle. Hmm. We did an astrology of Henry the Eighth and all of his wives. S- also speculative astrology specu- in well, some cases. Confirmed and speculative. Sure, sure. You did a fantastic thing on the female history of brewing alcohol. Only women brew. Yeah. Jim and I astrology dropped. It did. It was a fun week on Patreon. Also, we have our bit.ly link. Bit.ly slash trash candy quarantine. If you do want to hear about the murder of Anne Boleyn in 1536, that was posted this week as timely. well as it's timely. Margaret Beaufort. Breaking. Anne Boleyn murdered <laughs> in the Tower of London. I've got a lot of white hot rage. I'm not going to kid you. I'm forever. I'm still pretty mad about it. Anyway, you can check out those episodes as well as, I don't know, we probably got like 20, 25 episodes over there on the Trash would, Candy Quarantine so, Week yeah. if you need something else to do. Let's do some magic mirror. Oh, we're going to pull out our magic mirror this week. Huge thanks and love and appreciation to Anais Neen, Hedda, Charles S., Caroline S., Glenda, Kristen P., Jolene M., and Stephanie R., also, thank you to Roz S., Antonia K., Karen, Michelle, Diane T., Courtney B., Ifer, Carly L. Thank you all. And we have two new Trash Candy connoisseurs, two new super supporters that we get to thank this week, Lisa B. and Gerald G. Thank you, all of y'all, you. Y'all, amazing. Thank you so much to all of our new and existing patrons. We just love you so much. So... Alicia, it's said that wise men say only fools rush in. Dude, but I'm so ready to go, go, go. <laughs> Let's go. Let's do this. So, Stacy, I've teased my hair super high. Got a lot of hairspray going on. Got a ripped shirt, some neon. Talk to me. You've been shouting at the devil. Scheduled an appointment with Dr. Feelgood. (laughs) (laughs) 
Whose trashy divorce do you have this week for us? Tommy Lee and Pamela Anderson. Oh, my. This one gets brought up in the discussion group on Facebook quite a bit because, uh, woo. It was really, it. this is very, this is 90s This is what this podcast was made for. A little bit. It's funny how much of this I never absorbed the first go round in the in the 90s when this was happening. I guess I was just busy not paying attention to it. You're not really a tabloid reader mm-hmm. in the grocery store. Certainly wasn't then. Yeah. Anyway, I guess they, also... They, cover, they covered every cover forever. Yeah, and Bill Clinton was... Uh, there was some overlap with some rather enormous political scandals, so maybe I just didn't catch it, really. Anyway, Tommy Lee of Motley Crue and Pamela Anderson of... the She's the record holder for um, Playboy covers. Really? Mm-hmm. I did not know that. There you go. 14 of them, I believe. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She says very nice things about Hugh Hefner, which we have said very not nice things about Hugh Hefner, so it's balanced. It balances... This podcast is just a world of fucking discovery. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes you just can't get a bad idea out of your system. And that seems to be what happened between Motley Cruz drummer Tommy Lee and his one-time wife, co-parent, and on-again, off-again girlfriend of like 15 more years or something. Really? Oh, yeah. Yes, model and actress Pamela Anderson. He's remarried now, but it seems like they just, they've been co-parenting all this time. So it's not like they sure can't, like, it, it's not like they can just fully separate. And they just, it's just in them. They just. <laughs> they got the bug. <laughs> they got the bug. I think it's gone now, but it, it took a long, long time to get that out of their systems. Okay. So normally I start with the older person and the couple, but. That usually leads to centering the story around the guy. So I'm going to start with Pam. How did she find herself as the co-owner of a Los Angeles club in the mid-90s having her face licked by Tommy Lee? Excuse me? Yes. How did that happen? Like a cat? How indeed. I Like an, a cat on ecstasy who was yeah. also really drunk. Oh, no. That would be Tommy Lee. I don't think. I, I got that. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, just, I, don't, I don't want to besmirch. Cats? Pamela Anderson's reputation. (laughs) Okay. Pamela Denise Anderson was born July 1st, 1967, making her a cancer. She was raised in Ladysmith, British Columbia, in our beautiful neighbor to the north. Hello. Hello. And while I think her childhood was fairly normal from the outside in 2014, she revealed some disturbing accounts of sexual abuse by non-family members when she was a child. Oh, no. That's too bad. So Ladysmith and Comox, where she went to high school, is across the Strait of Georgia from the magical city of Vancouver, one of my favorite places Yay, on Earth. you do, do love Vancouver. And a few years after completing high school, Pam packed her things, hopped a ferry, and set out to make her way in the world as a fitness instructor across the Strait. Well, like you do. Yep. So this is so... This part of her biography is so perfectly what I would expect that I have trouble even believing it's real. In 1989, she attends a BC Lions football game. And this is actual like, it's Canadian League football, but it's football, not soccer. Okay. I was like, oh, she went to a soccer match. That's cool. <laughs> nope. Nope. Football. football. Okay. Okay. So she goes to a BC Lions football game and she's wearing a Labatt's beer t-shirt and she ends up on the Jumbotron. Nah. Nah. And so Labatt's hires her. Labatt? Labatt? Anyway, beer. Beer company hires her as its spokesmodel. Unbelievable. (laughs) 
Hugh Hefner sees her. <gasps> no! <laughs> anyway, that's... That is... <laughs> Pamela Anderson gets discovered. Went from fitness instructor to, uh, yeah. Beer model to playmate. Well, that's so, quite a rise. the Hef comes a-knockin', and when the Hef knocks... You move to Los Angeles and start appearing. She's on the cover not of here right now. So October '89 uh, is her first cover, and as noted, she will go on to um, to grace the cover of that esteemed publication. Publication mm-hmm. fourteen times. They don't even publish a physical copy anymore, do they? No, they I don't quit know. Doing that last year, I think. Anyway, I let my subscription expire. Oh, weird. <laughs> Did you? Okay, so she told Australia in 60 Minutes, uh, I think in 2018, that she had been just a painfully shy child. And so she was interested in modeling, but the early shoots were really just challenging for her. Like, she just wasn't confident about it. And that first cover shoot was not nude, because it's the cover. But, you know, at that point, she's in the, the Hefner-verse, as it were. Sure. And so she kind of works up to nude modeling, and she said, like, when she started seeing the actual pictures of her body, like, that is what sparked all of this confidence. And, like, oh, my God, like, this is amazing. And wow. she was kind of able to kind of shrug off all of the good girls don't. right. Yeah. Interesting. Like, lots of stuff. So, yeah, it is. She is a, she is a good spokesperson for herself was my takeaway watching some of the more recent interviews that she's done. You can't do better than that. Yeah. Okay, so again, by 1990, she's living in LA. She became the Playmate of the Month in February of that year. Congratulations. It's like a promotion, I guess. I don't know how this works. Well, no, if you're a Playmate of the Month, then at the end of the year, they pick Playmate of the Year. So that's, it's like Miss America and runner-up. You kind of get winnowed down and that's the pool. Well, but going from the cover to the centerfold... Oh, big deal, yeah. Okay. So she also starts landing some film and TV roles, including guest spots on Married with Children and Charles in Charge. Tim Allen, you'll be surprised to know, hires Pamela Anderson to play a tool-time girl on Home Improvements. I'm shocked. I'm shocked. And uh, she played that role occasionally for two years. And then... Then along came Baywatch. Yeah, she, it does. Yeah, she landed the role of C.J. Oh. Parker, and she sort of successfully transitioned from a Playboy playmate to an actually famous actress, although with a considerable amount of baggage, like the tabloids loved her. This would not improve when she met Tommy Lee the next year. So for now, we're going to park Dear Pamela in her red one piece at the Trashy Divorces Lifeguard stand, and we're going to go... Check out the guy. She could not quite get out of her system for years and years right. and years. Tommy Lee Bass was huh. born October 3rd, 62, Libra. He was born in Greece to a U.S. Army dad and a Greek mom. And in a bit of foreshadowing, his father proposed to his mother the first time he met her, and they were married five days later. Oh, well, that's okay. Sure. Tiny problem. His mother, Vasiliki Vula, is her nickname, Papa Dimitriou, I hope I got that sort of right, uh, had been Miss Greece a few years before these ill-timed nuptials. Oh. She did not really speak English, and apparently, I don't know that she ever became super proficient with it. Okay. But certainly when Tommy was a young child, no. 
So the tiny family with one-year-old Tommy in tow moves to Covina, California. Dad leaves the Army, works for L.A. County repairing highway repair vehicles. And this was really not her American dream, it turns out. Interesting. She had to clean houses to help make ends meet. Yeah. She had a little kid um, when, (laughs) like, Tommy mentioned in some interview somewhere that he never picked up any Greek language. So, like, his mother literally, like, couldn't communicate with any depth when he was very young. Like, it must have been very lonely is just how it sounds. Oh, that's a very sad story. Yeah, very isolating, very lonely. His dad didn't speak Greek either. (laughs) Anyway. That? Okay. Young Tommy was given drumsticks as a child. This may also have contributed to his mother's unhappiness. (laughs) And as a teenager, he got a real drum kit. And this was all that he needed because it was the 70s. It was L.A. or close enough to it. And Tommy Lee was six foot two inches of lean drumming power. And Mm -hmm. the boy had a dream. (laughs) Oh, man, did he? So he quits high school. And soon he's playing regularly on the Sunset Strip as part of a band called Sweet 19. Oh, my God. S-U-I-T-E, by the way. Sure. Part of why that band, that metal band was not going to work is that when you said it out loud, it's Sweet 19. I just realized that. That was never going to work. Nope. (laughs) Apparently Motley Crue. Before they settled on Motley Crue as the name for the band. Right. Uh, Nikki Six wanted to call it Christmas. What? <laughs> no idea. <laughs> Here comes Christmas. <laughs> Dude. Christmas is going to rock your face off. Like, oh I don't God. think it will. <laughs> Did you get tickets for Christmas? <laughs> That's funny. I had no idea. Uh, nope. Not a clue. I really, I enjoyed researching the story a lot. Okay, so contemporaries on the scene included Quiet Riot, Van Halen, Tommy Meets Nikki Six, and when Six's band split up in 81, they recruited McMars, and this guy that Tommy had known from high school, Vince Neal, as the lead singer. And that's Christmas. No, that's Motley Crue. (laughs) So Motley Crue was born... And I don't want to put too fine a point on this, but the band circa 1981 was a group of gross boy men with loud instruments, access to all of the drugs and alcohol in the world, and this white hot metal and then glam metal scene that they were sitting on the wild and perfect pulse of. Like, I mean, it's quite a story. It's, yeah. They were living in a disgusting roach and rat infested because they never cleaned, among other reasons. <sighs> apartment as a band, everybody's sleeping on mattresses on the floor. And they're all like 20s. Yeah, they're all yeah, late teens, early 20s. Yeah. yeah. Mm, that place smelled so oh, yeah. bad. Oh, yeah. No, the Vince Neal says that um, the, like, the L.A. Department of Health would come by routinely with, with like orders for them to go and clean their back patio because they would just shove... Like, this thing was a constant party because they'd play a show, come back to the house, and everybody would come. And so they would just like Christmas. shove their trash out nope. on the back patio, and the neighbors oh. upstairs complained. Like, it was just, woo. Woo mm-hmm. is right. So, yeah, it was just, it was a flop house full of, like, them and then all of these people who were looking for sex, drugs, or just a party that would never end. So, they record a record. They put it out on their own. Like, they made up a little label. And then Electra signs them, re-releases it in 82. And then in 83, things blow up with the release of Shout at the Devil. They uh, end up touring with Ozzy Osbourne that year. For yeah, not a bad gig if Bark you at can the moon. get it. Yeah. 
Yeah, this thing goes on to be a four-time platinum record. Holy um, cats. Yeah. I mean, it just, it's the dream, right? So everything any of them had ever dreamed of was, it was all happening. <laughs> this ride, though, was constantly threatening to kill them as well as the people around them. So here are some of the lowlights of the band's illustrious early years. This first one's bad. So oh, in no. 1984, lead singer Vince Neil was driving drunk to get more liquor when his car struck another vehicle and his passenger, Razzle Dingley from the band Hanoi Rocks, was killed. Oh, no. Okay. Get this. Vince served 18 days uh, for vehicular homicide and DUI in 1984. Not even three weeks. No. Wow. He was sentenced to 30 days. Uh, well. But I guess he had time off for good behavior. I. Wow. Okay, 1986. <laughs> While in London on tour supporting Theater of Pain, Nikki Six overdosed on heroin and nearly died. Yikes. His dealer, thinking he had died, dumped his body into a dumpster. What? Mm-hmm. <gasps> so Nikki Six like comes <laughs> out of it and wakes up in a fucking in a dumpster. dumpster? Oh my god. Nobody. <sighs> 87. Nikki mm. overdosed on heroin and was pronounced dead on the way to the hospital. But... The paramedic working on him, big fan of Motley Crue. So he starts administering injections of um, adrenaline. I'm Santa Claus, man. I'm okay. going to bring you back to life. Mm-hmm. Whiskers on kittens. It did, yeah. Oh, my God. So by 1988, their managers were like, no, you guys, no. It's a train um, wreck. Yeah. Yeah. So they told the band that I guess they were plotting a European tour. And they were like, look, if you guys go to Europe... One of you's coming home in a body bag, and I'm pretty sure that one was Nikki Six, but uh, who can say? Somebody's coming home in a body bag. So collectively, the band goes into rehab, and in 89, they release their biggest selling album, Dr. Feelgood. Oh, fantastic. Hit number one, stayed on the charts for 114 weeks. They were nominated for Grammys. Holy cats, 114 weeks? Mm -hmm. Two years. Oh, it was, I remember, this was like... My little band of, how old would we have been? Like 13 or something. This was, oh my God, my little band of baby teen, like, would-be metalheads. Like we this, running yeah. around singing Dr. Feelgood. Yeah. It's it was better than Christmas. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Christmas. <laughs> Can you imagine? All right. I think they really did a good job there overruling that, voting that down. Okay. So it is safe to say that by the end of all of this whirlwind, everybody really needed a break, but bands are terrible at that. So they put out a greatest hit style compilation called Decade of Decadence. And then Vince Neil either got fired or quit or was quit fired or whatever. Like they were all burned out and got into a fight. Yeah. Which... You know, following Decade of Decadence, they had a lost decade as Motley Crue because, like, they tried to replace them. Like, nothing worked for, like, the next 10 years. The timing here was perfect for Tommy Lee popping ecstasy and drinking champagne to head out for a New Year's Eve night on the town with some friends in 1994. They went to a club called Sanctuary. And after a while, a waitress brought over a shot of Goldschlager, a gift from Baywatch star Pamela Anderson. Oh, so she made the first move. Also one of the owners of the club. She was seated at a table nearby with a bunch of her friends. Please note, Tommy Lee is so 
So drugged. <laughs> okay. So by this point, Tommy had been divorced twice. His first marriage lasted just a year. It was over uh, in 85. In 86, he married actress Heather Locklear. They had broken up in 93. So the night before the dawning of 1995, Tommy was like a rich, accomplished madman in his early 30s with a lot of hard living behind him. Pam was a well-known actress with a tabloid-ready background and an ongoing association with Playboy magazine. Match made in heaven. So the band has an autobiography called Dirt, and Tommy recounts what followed, that shot of Goldschlager, and then the bottle of Cristal that he chased it with. <clears throat> oh. So he walks over to her table and introduced himself, apparently kind of dorkily, because he felt like he had put himself at a disadvantage immediately. He's also like, he's just rolling in like the ecstasy love haze. And so he literally, and he's, he, he's so skinny, like even now, he's just a super skinny dude. So he like slides over all of her friends' laps to no. like park himself right next to her. And then he takes her face in his hand again, totally rolling Feel on ecstasy on the love. and just, and licks from chin to temple oh. up the side of her face. Thank you, Ray Don. I did not need that lick. Oh, my God. Dear listeners, by rights, this should be the end of the story of Pam Anderson and Tommy Lee, and yet we are only here at the beginning. Uh. They played phone tag for the next six weeks, and when Tommy found out that Pam was booked for a photo shoot in Cancun, he hopped a flight, called every hotel there until he tracked her down. They met up for drinks, and four days later, on the 19th of February, 1995, on the beach in Cancun in their bathing suits, they were married. Four days? Four days! No. Four days. They got each other's names tattooed on their ring fingers in lieu of rings, because that's not cringy. That's what you do. Mm. Cool detail. After you've known each other four days, when Pam and our called... previous experience has been you licking my face off. Mm-hmm. Oh my god. When Pam called her family to share the happy news, her mother, who had found <laughs> out about the wedding by reading People magazine, no, freaked out and told her to file for divorce. Pam's brother hopped on the phone to ask Tommy what his address was so he could swing by and kick his ass in person. Oh. <laughs> okay. I'll show you some Christmas, buddy. Yeah, no kidding. All right, so Pam wanted kids, and Tommy felt, I mean, again, he's 32 now. Like, he's had two marriages. Like, he felt ready for kids. I feel like any reasonable look at his lifestyle would indicate that he was not, in fact, ready for kids. But what do I know? Curious. So rather than waste time, like, getting to know one another, they just started trying to get pregnant. Meanwhile, the tabloids in the public were hooked on this obviously terrible pop culture storyline, and so they couldn't go anywhere without hordes of paparazzi following them. Indeed, Pam miscarried her first pregnancy Uh. that summer and was transported by ambulance to a hospital. And the way Tommy describes the photographers giving chase, it sounds very similar to what happened to Princess Diana and Dodi Fayette. Like, as I was reading the description... Yeah, he, he was clearly concerned that they were going to run the ambulance off the road oh and my God. kill everyone. <laughs> so, fun. So, that fall, Pam learned that she was pregnant again, and the pair shook off their shared depression from the earlier loss. In June of 96, they welcomed son Brandon Thomas. Dylan Jagger would follow at the end of 1997. 
And in between, you may be surprised to learn this, but Pam filed for divorce from this very well thought out and not at all impulsive marriage, but they reconciled and would not actually divorce until 1998. But there was this thing happening in the background that just really seemed to keep them from ever getting on any kind of solid footing. It just kept them from ever being able to focus where they needed to focus. Okay. A few months after the newlyweds had returned from Cancun, Tommy was doing some reno on the Malibu mansion that they had moved well, into. Oh, I could do, yeah. <laughs> Apparently, he was a total pain in the ass as a client. Big surprise. And in the course of things, he fired the entire crew, told them that the work was shoddy, he wasn't going to pay for it, and he stiffed an electrician named Rand Gautier for 20000 Oh. Yeah, I don't know how that guy's name is pronounced. Sorry, Rand. G-A-U-T-H-I-E-R. I don't know how it's pronounced in California. Let me put it that way. <laughs> I can guess it how it's pronounced in France, but he could be gother. I don't know. Like, moving on. Moving on. Rand says that when he and a buddy came back to get their tools, Mm-mm. Tommy grabbed a shotgun and told, to, told them to get the fuck off the property. No. So Rand does what any reasonable person would do, right? He starts casing the house for months. Oh, that's so, that's a reasonable person. He just parks outside of their house for months at night and watches to get a feel for the rhythm of, of the, the household. <gasps> no. After some time of this, he came back and he stole a safe that he knew was in the garage of the home. Because that's what reasonable people do. Theft is cool. Yeah. So, oh man, I guess the thing to note about this, Rand is an unreliable narrator. There's a whole Rolling Stone piece about this that is like one of the most bonkers caper stories in the world. So I'm going to just kind of give you the, the so gist of it. grain of salt around the rim on this Lots, one. Lots. Okay. Because the safe is, um, I think it's six feet by four feet by three feet. This is not like what? a little- yeah, it's not like a little wall safe. It's like, it's a man-sized safe, basically. Okay. Rand says the heist went like this. At 3 a.m., while the Lees were asleep upstairs, he hopped their fence with a yak fur rug over his back. What? <laughs> Sorry, I'm not sure if you heard that detail. Um, he hopped the fence... With a yak fur rug over his back so that the cameras that he had installed in his work as an electrician would appear, would, would show what appeared to be their dog hauling a U-Haul dolly. <laughs> I see absolutely nothing suspicious about this no, plan, Boris. No, no, <laughs> nothing weird. So big shaggy dog with a U-Haul dolly. Um... He says that he disabled the security cameras, no. goes inside. He says he even went into their bedroom while they were asleep, which is so not cool. If Creepy. True. Then he goes to the garage, which I say garage, and we think, oh, a garage, like messy side car parked it. No. Yeah, this is, old toys, this refrigerator. Is Tommy's recording studio. Oh. There are tens of thousands of dollars of equipment in this room and much of it is very very heavy hundreds of pounds okay rand silently moves all this shit out of the way before silently getting to the six foot by four foot by three foot oh my god safe no and just like has he taken off the yak outfit 
and just easily tips the six foot by four foot by three foot safe silently without any help. The dolly without any help at all. Sure. Okay. Well, he's got to wait for his wolf pack <laughs> to come in. What the fuck? And then he then he wheels it on out to his truck on the street, and then he. Nobody's curious at why a dog is driving the Scooby Doo fucking van. It's three in the morning. Oh my god. Um, he claims that he was able to bench press five hundred pounds at the time, which again. Okay. That's what you, yeah. I mean, he sits outside of an old boss's house all night. Lifts and weights. Also lifts weights. Uh-huh. So, yeah, then he, he manages to get it into the bed of his truck all by himself in his telling. Um, it is uh, believed that this was not a one-person job. Yak blood is very powerful. Yeah, drinking the yak blood. So he knew that the safe had guns and jewelry in it. It turns out the safe had a lot of guns in it, although he denies... As far as he's concerned, there were never any guns in it. it. Anyway, whatever. It's it's weird. This story is very weird. So he did not know that the safe contained a sex tape and various <gasps> risque photographs. No. This was back in 1995 when you still had to pay for porn. And yes, I know there's still... This is not, no, they made a sex. It's fine. Do whatever you want to do. Oh, this is sure. someone has Stolen. taken. Yeah. Yeah. This is, yeah. This isn't like Kim Kardashian leaking her. Was it Kim? I don't know. Whichever, mm. you know, people leak their sex tapes these days. I don't know why, but they do. Um, so Rand, it turns out, had a lot of contacts in the adult film industry because he had appeared in at least 75 of them. Oh, Jesus Christ. No, Rand. <sighs> So he basically, once well, he... Well, porn all day, stalk all night, lift weights. It's, yes. Come on. It's, it's a packed life he has, and electricians work. Um, so yeah, he, you know... This is a fucking train wreck. Diamond blade cutter, whatever. Like, he gets into the safe and whatever, takes this tape to oh. a buddy in the industry. So this was around the same time that adult film star and director Ron Jeremy, the hedgehog, was putting out <laughs> the John Wayne Bobbitt films that we talked oh, about yeah. God, back in season one, I guess. Oh. So they shop this to Ron Jeremy and Ron is like, holy shit, guys, we can't just, this is stolen property. You can't do this. We cannot, we're not going down for this, which is something Ron Jeremy We have to return this say. Christmas gift. We can't, we can't can, keep it. Can you? Imagine shopping a celebrity sex tape that's too hot for Ron Jeremy. No. (laughs) The world is upside down. Eventually, and this appears to be true, the mob financed this like (gasps) thefty brain trust to market the shit on the nascent internet. It's like 1995, 96. Hardly anyone is using the internet. Like there are like 40 million users worldwide at the time, but. Right. Yeah. Like it's not. Yeah. So they would just basically build these like terrible HTML marketing sites with URLs like pamsex.com and pamlee.com and pamsextape.com. Oh, no. To market what they build as Pamela's hardcore sex movie, movie, movie. <laughs> and it was before streaming video. So like basically it just had an address where you send a check. No. There was no PayPal. There was no like there was none of that. So you send your check for fifty nine ninety five, and they 60 would sixty bucks. They would send you <laughs> Pamela's hardcore sex movie, 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 movie. <laughs> okay, even better. Imagine a world 
Pam and Tommy don't know that this tape is missing. They don't know it's no. after being sold. They don't know that the safe is gone for <gasps> months. What? They just don't notice. They're a little I- busy with their babies and their parties and their whatever. So like something looks different about this room. What changed? Yeah. Oh my god. January 1996, I think the theft may have happened in October. They realized the safe was gone and called the police right away. Speedy. Speedy. Mm -hmm. So aside from filing a police report, including an inventory of the contents of the safe, which, again, heavy on the guns, they also hired Anthony Pelicano, Hollywood fixer and future convict, to figure out what had happened. Motley Crue's head of security was a former Hell's Angel. So he gets brought in. And this literally means that at the start of 1996, there were bands of bikers roving the adult film studios of Los Angeles, terrorizing porn producers. That's not terrifying at all. In an effort to find the source of the tapes and stop them from being shipped out. Shaking them down. Yeah. Oh my God. Like, bikers were terrorizing the porn industry in 1996 in Los Angeles. Like, it's... This story has ever... Who has that on their bingo card? So by then, thousands of these were circulating around the world. Oh, my God. Um, like, at one point, things got so hot that, like, Rand's business partner or whatever fled the country, went to Amsterdam, and he's basically going to... Do you remember when cyber cafes were a thing? He's going yeah. to cyber cafes all day, every day, logging onto, like, porn message boards to market these oh tapes. Oh, my God. And then no. Rand is back in L.A. shipping them out. Like, it's bonzo. So, Penthouse acquires a copy, Penthouse Magazine. Oh, God. And once Tommy and Pam learned about that, that's when they really freaked out. So, March 29, 1996, Pam is quite pregnant. Oh, God she is bless her. trying to build a legit career as an actress. So, they file a $10 million lawsuit against everyone they thought was involved or had a copy of the tape, including Penthouse. So, Penthouse has lawyers who told them that they could not publish stills from the tape because technically this was still Tommy and Pam's... Stolen property! Intellectual property. Yeah. yeah. This is their IP. It's copyright them. But Penthouse did go through with a thorough written description of the 54-minute long tape. I think only eight oh. minutes of it are, are sex, but it's eight more minutes than they wanted to have out there. Penthouse Yikes also used... Bikes. Yeah, the, Penthouse also used the stolen photographs that had been in the safe and uh, some someone abroad had already published them so I guess <sighs> this is horrible penthouse was also able to convince a judge that since pam frequently worked as a nude model and the pair had talked about their sex lives in interviews that they had already forfeited their privacy rights no it's so gross like i don't know i you just hate for that to be a real thing Meanwhile, the stolen tape was itself being stolen. And by late 96, there was an entire industry of people who would buy a copy and make copies with two VCRs or copying from a CD-ROM or whatever. Oh, no. And then they would slap together a website with a URL like pamsextapebybob.com or whatever. And Movie. Yeah, so the original Thefty Brain Trust suddenly couldn't make any money on it, and the dude stuck in Amsterdam like, where's my money? And just... Okay. This tape is thought to have generated $77 million in revenue. Excuse me? <gasps> Basically, none of which ever found its way to Rand, the original thief, 
or Tommy and Pam, the stars of the tape. Oh my god. They ended up effectively licensing the tape to an early like porn on the web pioneer, which is in itself a weird story. This guy like broke the deal and made like got with a physical distributor to send it to porn shops around the country. So Pam and Tommy sued him. Oh my god. And this lawsuit stretched on into 2002, which is four years after they divorced. Like, wow. So you can see how you can see how the distraction was built in. The tape ordeal took a huge toll on the both of them. And Tommy would tell 2020 in 04 that, quote, not being able to do anything about the tape was adding so much frustration and stress to our relationship. It was just consuming us. And also they had the kids, and that also took the focus off of them as a couple and their relationship. So in the book The Dirt, Tommy would say, Pamela and I got busy having kids so quickly that we never gave ourselves a chance to build a solid relationship. You knew each other four days. I asked her much later, why didn't we work on our relationship more? We couldn't, she replied. I was pregnant the whole time. Hmm. True story. And the babies, while certainly well-loved, didn't actually bring them closer. Tommy, in a bit of really like keen introspection, said, So, unable to step back and see the situation from any reasonable perspective, I turned into a whiny, needy little brat. Uh. Maybe it was my way of becoming Pamela's third child so I'd get the attention I needed to. Yeah. Now, all of a sudden, Pamela and I were arguing all the time. Our relationship had slowly degenerated from pure love to love-hate. It got worse. In February 1998, a fight in their home escalated to violence. Oh, no. And in May of that year, Tommy was sentenced to six months in jail for battering Pam. Wow. She was left bruised and with a torn fingernail and had been holding one of their babies while the other looked on during the altercation. Oh, my I would also like to note what a difference a decade makes because Vince Neil served about to say 18, 18 days, days for killing the, a person. Yeah. Pam filed for divorce after the battering incident, but these two really have something between them that they cannot quite shake. Hmm. When Tommy got out of jail, they tried to give it another go. Oh my. Didn't last. Pam went on to have an on again, off again romance with Kid Rock in the 2000s that culminated in. Oh hell, I forgot all about that. Culminated in two things. First, she was briefly married to him. And second, she got back together for a bit with Tommy. Oh. She's also been married twice to a third guy, uh, Rick Solomon. The first time around, they got an annulment. The second time in 2015, she divorced him. Okay. Maybe he divorced her. I don't know. Can't help falling in love, man. Yeah. Tommy has had several engagements in between his reconciliations with Pam. And on Valentine's Day 2019, last year... He married an internet celebrity named Brittany Furlan. She is much younger than he is, but there is not a lot of indication that he's ever grown up in any meaningful way. So this one is so wild that even the domestic battery part didn't cause me angst. So I'm giving these two star-crossed lovebirds 77 million trash cans. All hauled by electricians (laughs) in yak uniforms. I'm never in my life. A six foot by four foot by three foot trash can in a yak fur rug. What the hell? That was amazing. Well done. (laughs) Well done. That was good and trashy. Yeah. 
Yeah. I do sort of wonder, like, if things don't work out in his current marriage, like, I I wouldn't rule out that maybe they attempt to reconcile again. They had a big dust up in 2018 that I think culminated. He had a like a physical fight with one of his sons. He's now 21 or, or was 21 at the time. I don't know. They're still all deeply enmeshed in each other's lives and lots of uh, lots of conflict ongoing. So who knows? It's a big old goofy world. And Christmas comes every year. You never know. All let's right. take a break. Yeah, let's take a break. Wow. Yaks. (laughs) Hey, Trash Pandas. When you need a brain break from your day, let me recommend the game June's Journey for Android and iPhone. It's a hidden object mystery game where you are solving a murder, uncovering family secrets, and, I don't know, exposing official corruption? All in an extremely stylish 1920s setting. Every scene takes you deeper into the mystery and introduces you to an expansive cast of characters as June Parker explores the questions surrounding her sister's apparent murder-suicide at the family's beachfront estate. Add your own elements to the island, from lush gardens to gorgeous new buildings. This story has so many twists and turns. Right now, we are on a global journey attempting to rescue June's niece, Virginia. It's a great combo of gameplay. It's a memory puzzle, a design project an intriguing storyline with genuinely fabulous art. When you want to let your mind wander, relax into this glorious 1920s murder mystery and get lost in the fun. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must-not-take-yourself-too-seriously and 6-1 since that matters and what do I even say other than hey... Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, Alicia, you have not a princess, but a daughter of a king. That is, that's, that's it. Yeah. This week, I've got the trashy divorces of the daughter of Elvis. The king. The king. Lisa Marie Presley, she's a four-time divorcee. All-star almost. Former Scientologist and a life that is like no one else's. That seems right. Lisa Marie born February 1st, 1968. She's an Aquarius baby, the child of rock and roll uh-huh. royalty, 
Lisa Marie's parents, Elvis and Priscilla, have literally been married nine months. And That's true. there's the baby. Yeah, we covered them back a while back. You covered them back in a previous season. So I'm not getting too much into right. Elvis and Priscilla here, but it's important to note that Lisa Marie is Elvis's only child. And from birth, this kid is in the papers. She's headline news. Like, it's an existence I don't think the majority of us would even begin to get close to understanding the realm of comprehension of what it's like to grow up as her. When Lisa Marie is born, Elvis kind of pulls a Barney Stinson. Remember when Barney Stinson had a daughter and became just, uh, she's the apple of my eye and the light of my world, and mm-hmm. he's a happy dad. Like, go-karts are fine in the house. It's it's whatever. Like, <laughs> chocolate cake for breakfast. There are no rules with dad. Right. Which leaves Priscilla, mom, mm. to be the heavy, the rule maker. You have to eat your vegetables. Right. Elvis and Priscilla split in 1973, so Lisa's like six. But now her time is split and two very different parenting styles happening. At the tender age of nine, Lisa Marie's father, Elvis, dies. This is 1977. And losing a parent is tough at any age. You sure. But as a nine-year-old. Incredibly tough. Having the most famous father in the world. And the things that were said about him in his final years, like... All true. Yep. Okay. So Lisa Marie is actually at Graceland when Elvis is found. Oh, no. She's in the doorway of the, yeah. Because that was like his girlfriend discovered the body. Like, all of that sounds unhealthy. His manager did. Lisa Marie, (laughs) she's calling his dad girlfriend Linda to tell her the news. And Linda falls apart. And Lisa Marie's like, you need to get your shit together. Oh, God. She's nine. Yeah. Like, this is a childhood with some trauma. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, so that same year, 1977, Priscilla, naturally devastated, is looking for something to give her strength in a very difficult time. And Priscilla is friends with Gabe Kaplan, who is starring in Welcome Back, Cotter, with John Travolta. Priscilla really wants to meet John Travolta. So Gabe Kaplan hooks the two of them up. And Priscilla's like, hey, John. Uh, You survived all these things that my ex-husband did not survive. How did you do it? And Johnny T answers, Uh Scientology. Church of Scientology, baby. Come to Xenu. He's got you. So Scientology, an applied religious philosophy. Oh, is that what it is? Using courses and auditing for members. An amazing grift full of blackmail opportunities. To better understand themselves. Baby stealing. Priscilla and Lisa Marie Hmm. are now both into Scientology and will be for a number of decades to come. So the teenage years for Lisa Marie were not great. Priscilla says she was not prepared for her daughter to wake up at 13 and turn into someone different. Yeah. It's kind of rough. Lisa Marie is going to spend some time experimenting with drugs like teens often do. She says, I was never addicted to anything. And those days are long behind me. This was an interview back. er, When she was a Scientologist? Because that would be... Still when she was a Scientologist, yes. Okay. Okay. I mean, she may 
she genuinely may not have been like lots of kids play with drugs in a way that would look real bad if you were 50. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Well, Lisa Marie is also getting into boys too. She's mm-hmm. a little boy crazy and oh God, like being a teenager is hard enough, but you're also the teenager and Elvis is your dad and you're mm-hmm. in the spotlight all the time. And Priscilla, like, well, yeah. And you're, yeah. Fascination never ends. Priscilla took over like Graceland as a heritage site or whatever. And it's this, yeah. Like she's in the news all the time. It's, it's all yikes on bikes. So, oh, and mom's in the airplane movies too. Like, which I don't know in the eighties was a real thing. So, so by the time Lisa Marie's like 18, Priscilla is done. I've had enough. And one night in the wee small hours of the morning, Priscilla packs up her shit, loads Lisa Marie up, and drops her off at the church. You take her. Oh, Scientology. Well, when I say drop her off at the church... Go live at the Celebrity Center or I mean the Celebrity Center in LA, yes, where Lisa Marie will get a small apartment and live there for like eight months. This does not sound like a terrible thing, actually, if you're a Scientologist. Well, yeah, gain some independence. Mm Mm-hmm. And here, Lisa Marie will meet hubby number one, dude named Danny Kehoe. Danny's a Scorpio baby. He's born November 6th, 1964. So he's a few years older than Lisa Marie. Danny's parents have divorced when he's about six. And mom has remarried another dude who is a Scientologist, which brings Danny and his family into the fold. Danny, regular kid, like super talented, musician, heads to L.A., 1984, He's playing bass around L.A. He's a house musician at Mad Hatter Studios. Mad Hatter Studios is owned by a dude named Chick Coria, mm-hmm. who has a son, Thad, who is friends with Danny, and they're all Scientologists, too. Okay. Okay, so in 1985, Danny and Lisa Marie meet at a Scientology event. Woo! Like a hootenanny, maybe? Like a Scientology hootenanny? That's exactly what it is. Did they Were they partners for the square dance? Probably. Take a little hayride together, like Scientologist kids do. Like Christmas. <laughs> okay, so here's Danny, and he's a young musician and a Scorpio. And this contains all the elements for, well, they date on and off for a few years. He moves in with her at the Celebrity Center. Wait, wait, what? How old? How old are they? She's like 18. He's okay, a little so, bit older. Okay, so they're legal adults. I'm like, yeah, no, they're, they're totally legal what adults. What is Scientology letting teenagers do under their roof? <laughs> well, he's like four years older. So he moves in with her at the Scientology Center. They hang out there for a little while and then go, like, whatever, rent, buy. They, they rent homes or, like, live in homes that are owned by Scientology people once they're out of the Celebrity Center. These two lovebirds marry. In a super secret ceremony at the Celebrity Center, <sighs> October 3rd, 1988. Groovy. Apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Nine months later, just like her mom and dad, their daughter is born. Wow. Followed by a son. Why inside. does no one take time to get to know each other? What I don't is know. That? They follow that with a son inside another three years. And so... Lisa Marie and Danny have a band and they love to do music together, but she's a mom too. And well, (laughs) there's something brewing on the side with a lot of Imago. But after six years, this marriage is done with a Dominican Republic quickie divorce. Hey, hey. In May of 1994. So (laughs) almost six years, two kids, hubby number one, done. 
or is he? Because Danny never really leaves Lisa Marie. He literally, to this day, lives on her property. He's built a home there. Huh. They travel together. They're still super close. They're he's in her band. Yeah, he's in her band. Is that? Yeah, <laughs> he is the band. Like they have this super days. close connection. Like we've covered a lot of tales on trashy divorces, but like ex hubby. This ex-husband never leaves, like, it's three days, three decades later. Yeah, interesting. Interesting. Okay. I mean, good on them for, I'm sure that's a super productive co-parenting. Well, like Lisa Marie said, like, when I met him, I knew that he was some, like, I knew he was a one. Right. You know, I wanted him to be the father to my children. They have a thing. Super close. Okay. But Dominican Republic divorce. Sure. They're done. Hubby number two might be a little bit more famous than a hubby number one. And here's where we really get into some Imago. There's a terrific interview with Oprah Winfrey and Lisa Marie that I'm using to source this content. Again, all links we use for our research, always on TrashyDivorces.com. If you want to research further or get sources for our Trash Candy Tales. All right, hubby number two. Michael Jackson. I've heard of him. <laughs> I am going to keep. Yeah, there's a lot. We're, allegations. This is, this is trashy divorces. This is not the Michael Jackson show. Um, there's so we're going to cover this from Lisa Marie's mm-hmm. perspective in what happened in their marriage. Yeah. Okay. Hubby number two. This wedding happens twenty days after that Dominican Republic divorce. Woo. From Danny is final. Poor Danny. Michael Jackson, he's a Virgo, born August 29th. And Lisa Marie knows Michael from the age of seven. He's like 10 years older than she is, but she goes to see him when she's a little kid in concert. Because he is a little older, she is able to manifest this thing. And there's a lot of the same energy and buzz and feeling of the magic crackle around him, similar to her father. So when I talk about Imago, it's a uh, Harville Hendricks developed a relationship theory that your current relationship that you're in, you're working a previous relationship out, typically starting with parents. And I think this is right. Perfectly unfolded in oh, this picture. Sense. Yeah. So Lisa Marie knows Michael before her dad passes, like at seven, dad passes at nine. Mm hmm. Sometime in 1992, Lisa Marie is a few years into the marriage with Danny, and Lisa Marie and Michael Jackson will begin a friendship in which Lisa Marie will leave her husband to marry Michael Jackson 20 days after that divorce. Michael and Lisa Marie moved to New York. They live in Trump Towers. Eek. Talk about the pressure of the press. Like, they're hounded. This is the king of pop married to the daughter of the king of rock and roll. Right. Like, no one can get enough of it. And even still today, like, people have a lot of questions. It's touted as a sham marriage. Oh, it's a press stunt. Because he is I having think, his legal some things. Right. That's what I recall is there was just a lot of speculation that it that basically, yeah, that it was PR or or whatever. That's kind of how I recall it. I had some questions, too. Okay. So this is what I can surmise, listening to her in interviews. Lisa Marie says they were really in love. It was completely a sexual relationship. It's his first marriage. 
Michael will propose over the phone first and then in person with the 10-carat diamond ring. Oh, they didn't tattoo their names on their ring fingers? Huh. And no yaks. No (laughs) yaks in my story either, but I'll work on that for next week. It was just a yak for a rug. It was not... Yakety yak. There was no actual yak. The yak had long since been harmed in the making of that. (laughs) So here's where... She leaves the relationship with Danny to be with Michael Jackson and is working through all of those feelings as she's married to her new husband. But Danny's still traveling with the family. He's still there with the kids. It's, it's very unusual. But I think this is where Amago comes in because I think Lisa Marie is trying to save Michael Jackson in a way that she was unable to save her oh, father. Interesting. So... And tragic, if that's the case. It's so tragic. So Lisa Marie says that Michael was really interested in her and her religion. And when he turned his attention on to you, it was mesmerizing. Like you were the only one in the room. She is taken with him. She says he was the best drug. I've never been so high. Like I only wanted his attention and his focus. It gets her high. She says it was like being with my dad. So I think there's a... yeah. Okay. But Lisa Marie also sees a dude who is skidding and says that Michael was a master manipulator. He's been doing it his entire life. He's a puppet master. He has an entourage. And you don't disagree with him because if you disagree with him, he's going to freeze you out. And Lisa Marie is watching all of these bloodsuckers around Michael Jackson, similar to all the bloodsuckers around her dad. Yeah, the Memphis Mm -hmm. Mafia. Although they would do the freezing. It sounds like Elvis was really open to anybody and everybody who was cool. And his, it was it was his, it was his that mafia that would freeze the people out there. It, oh, the story. Okay. Oh, okay. So, oh gosh. Lisa Marie sees his growing dependency on drugs. And truly, if there is a person in the world who might look at your life, Michael Jackson, and have an inkling to anticipate what's coming, it might be your wife. And she's trying to save him, like from himself and the people around him. And in 1995, he's hospitalized. Remember when he is rehearsing for the HBO special and lands in the hospital? He's in the hospital for like six days with no clear answers to his wife about what's going on. Every day the diagnosis gets a little sketchier and nobody's really telling her. And this is when... Lisa Marie really begins to suspect that he has a drug problem. I mean, do we know now why he was in the hospital for six days? He has a drug problem. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. So Lisa Marie like wants to nurture him and caretake for him. But that only goes so far when the other half of the unit you're trying to caretake Mm -hmm. is broken. So she lays her cards on the table and she's like, listen, man, do you want the drugs and the people using you? Or me, because this is this is where I am with this. And she had a really good line like, don't make a deal you're not willing to pay up on. Because that's like, she thought he would see sense and be like, oh, of course it's you. Oh, yeah. No, that's... Uh, baby, baby, honey. Got to be starting something. Yes. And it is uh, not the choice that... No, addicts always operate from a place of like, genuine shows. self-knowledge and good yeah. faith and all that. So... He has enough money, power, privilege to be creating his own reality. And the people around him are all going along with it. Like when you're a star, right? They'll 
hmm. let you do anything. So Lisa Marie says he wasn't a bad person, but I didn't want to feel disposable. And I felt disposable all the time. Like he could just drop me. I tried to caretake him, tried to help him out of a spiral. Like in, in their relationship, they talk a lot about Elvis. He shares a lot of fears with her. Like he's going to end up, how did it happen? What did you see? You know, he's feels like he's going to end up like Elvis. And sure enough, their deaths were not dissimilar. So within months of their breakup, Debbie Rowe, who was part of his entourage, is pregnant. Like Lisa Marie wanted kids, but only at the right time. And Michael Jackson's, they're like, well, Debbie Rowe says she'll have my baby. This is the constant threat in their marriage. Like Lisa Marie, if you don't want to have a kid, Debbie's over here saying she's totally. Well, he he did ultimately have his children through surrogacy, right? Through Debbie Rowe. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Well, which would leave Lisa Marie feeling a little oh, bit yeah, disposable. No, no, that's not at all weird to, I don't know, threaten your spouse with, I'm going to have a kid with somebody else. So January 1996, Lisa Marie has made her stand, paying up her end of the bargain files for divorce, citing irreconcilable differences. Two years-ish. Um, They're done. Their judge, I think it's Judge Perez, says, they lasted longer than I thought they would. I gave them a year. They lasted a year and a half. Yikes. Yeah. Yikes. Uh, but I, I mean, uh, yeah, I recall. Again, I mean, this is just one of those like pop culture moments where everyone was like, ooh, that uh-uh-uh, that's not going to work out. And, well, it, and it didn't. Here's kind of the strange thing. Lisa Marie and Michael Jackson are going to spend another four years on again and off again. They still spend time together. She will travel to visit him. Like, they're always talking about a reconciliation. Oh, interesting. Which does not happen. Right. They do have one conversation in 2005. He, four years before his death. And she regrets being cold and distant with him. And he's still wanting to reconcile. He also tells her at that time that, you know what, you were right about a lot of the people around me. And maybe I haven't made the right choices. But Lisa Marie, at this point, has moved on. So a 50-year-old Michael Jackson will die June 25th, 2009. I had to look up that date. It doesn't feel like it's been 11 years. I, uh, yeah, I I was like, when you were telling the story, I was like, did he die like in 05 or like... 2009. And again, eerily similar circumstances kinda, to Elvis, yeah. who died at the age of 42. A tragic end for both of those performers. Yeah. So let's get to hubby number three. Oh, Nick Cage. Oh, my God. Nicholas Coppola, <laughs> actually. Nick Cage. Poor Lisa Marie Presley. Holy shit. There's no judgment. And, like, I can't. Like, there, there's no way to understand what this child, young woman woman has gone through in her life to right. even make this a uh, relatable tale like it it is incomprehensible from from what i can gather about nick cage and he's because he's been married and divorced a lot oh like, good god nick he cage. must come on like the most charismatic guy in the universe and about a week later you're like oh my god he's a dirtbag wait on it so nick cage january 7 baby he's a capricorn natch, natch. capricorn man And truly, Nick Cage is his very own Trashy Divorces episode, which is kind of how this started. Because Nicolas Cage has been suggested, Michael Jackson's been suggested, 
And I'm like, you know what? Lisa Marie Presley is a really interesting narrative, but I have kind of Nicolas Cage and his whole arc on a back burner for another day because that's a hell of a trashy tale. It's coming in the future, but let's get these two kids together for the sake of this story. The year is 2000. Lisa Marie's kids are growing up a little. She's engaged to another dude. Future's looking bright, wearing shades. Lisa Marie and Nick Cage meet at a party and whoosh, her engagement is over. These two are an item. And Nicolas Cage already has a kid from his youthful days and is still yet to divorce from Patricia Arquette, who he's still married to. Sure. Which that will end in divorce in 2001. Lisa Marie, Nick Cage, date from 2000 to 2002, when in August of 2002, they decide it would be a great idea. Great idea. To get hitched. Honey, I have an idea. How'd it go? They will file for divorce three and a half months later in November of 2002. Heck yeah. The divorce isn't going to be finalized till 2004. Okay. But it is... I bet three they and a half months tip to toe. Yeah, I bet they don't spend the next four years on again, off again, talking about reconciliation. Not really. Not There's really. an interview on Larry King with a vampire. Lisa Marie does in 2003. This is as they're working through to the divorce. And Lisa Marie says they're still very much friends. Uh, and she talks about how they got together. Apparently, it was a colossal connection. Lisa Marie says, we were both gypsy-spirited and tyrannical pirates. That is her quote, not mine. Please don't send me an email. We understand the Roma people object to it. I object to it, but I'm using a direct quote. Mm -hmm. So her quote, not mine. Tyrannical pirate, though, is good. Tyrannical pirate. That's what we're going to hook to here. She says it was kind of one of those. (laughs) See what I did there? It was kind of one of those things where you marry someone hoping. I mean, we already had... We'd been together for two years before we got married. So it was one of those things where you're marrying, hoping that you're going to either stabilize it or it's going to, you know, accentuate all that was going on prior to what was problematic. So it kind of did the latter. Uh, That's all. Sorry. She goes on to say, and this is where tyrannical pirates come in. And one pirate marries another. They'll sink the ship is basically what it comes down to. I thought that was very astute. Yeah. Two pirates marry each other. You're you're sinking the ship, man. You can't have two people in charge. So apparently one of the major strains in this relationship, the long three and a half month marriage. Yeah, no, it wears on you over time. Was that Nicolas Cage just was never going to be as famous as Lisa Marie. And he's surprised at her fame. Like, I've made 50 movies and I have an Academy Award and I'm a big fucking deal and... What the hell? Everywhere you go, people know your name. There's a little disparity, I suppose, that he is not very comfortable with. That's really interesting. Yeah, I would think that he would be so famous that another person's fame would not threaten him. Oh, no. Apparently. Well, according according to sources. Sure. So they do settle amicably in 2004. Three and a half month total. Just a little tip from Trashy Divorces headquarters to y'all. Please do not get married because you think it will fix a broken relationship. It will not. Hasn't worked yet. Three up, three down. We got one more to talk about. All right. Next up, dude named Michael Lockwood. Okay. He's her guitarist and producer and director. Right, because she's still in a band. With her ex-husband number one. Yeah, with Danny. 
Shit. Okay. <laughs> Dude, don't make the band weird. <laughs> this is tough. This is Fleetwood Mac. It, it apparently isn't weird. Uh, Lisa Marie and Michael get hitched in January 2006, where hubby number one Danny is the best man. Jesus Christ. In March of 2008, Lisa Marie is pregnant with twins, which do run in her family. And post-delivery is when Lisa Marie is prescribed pain medication after delivery, opiates, which will become a dependency mm-hmm. by like 2013 or so, where she is mixing opiates with alcohol, marriage a little Very bit on the skids, dangerous, yeah. very much into her own trauma. By June of 2016, the two have filed for divorce. This is where it gets nasty. February 2017, kids are taken into protective custody. And she will deny him spousal support, saying she's found a lot of child porn on his computer, oh, which he flatly denies. I'm He's sure like, he, that is yeah. absolutely not true. No. The, yeah. So back at the end of 2019... The divorce trial date was set for June of this year, just next month. Oh, so that's delayed. But now courts are paused Mm -hmm. for COVID. So all of that mess is still ahead of us. It is anticipated to be fairly salacious. Mm -hmm. Lisa Marie has gone in to rehab, extensive long-term rehab, and recovered from her opiate addiction She's now speaking out to help others about substance misuse and waiting for her day in court where all of those struggles, I am certain, will be used in the hearing. Yeah, yeah. Additionally, also on hold in court is a legal battle concerning Elvis's estate and a former manager of hers who Lisa Marie claims, like, wiped her out, like, Poor Lisa Marie right now is paused on a stage that has to suck because she is waiting for divorce, custody, money arrangements. Like, yeah, terrible, terrible. Also, in in an updated news, Lisa Marie has left the Church of Scientology. She has in turn been labeled a suppressive person. Well, as you do. She has been good friends with Leah Remini. It's her okay, whole life. Lisa Marie. All the good people are SPs or whatever. Right? No, mm. Lisa Marie's totally an SP. I'm not sure of her standing of late, but Lisa Marie. You and Katie Holmes. Right. BFFs. Lisa Marie, like, she's friends with Leah Remini. And, like, yeah, I get what you're doing. That's great. But I've got all this other shit going on. So I don't really have time to participate in your Bring Scientology Down revolution. So they may be on the skids. I'm not. She's had more to deal with than right. Scientology. Yeah, for sure. Apparently Priscilla, mom, has also left the church after Lisa Marie did. Lisa Marie's older kids, because she still has two kids with Danny Kehoe, who's still in the church. Her kids are still in the church. Oh, that's complicated. Her kids are trying to get her reinstated, but as a suppressive person, right. a little, little she, tricky. She's a heretic. Those are the trashy divorces. Tales of Lisa Marie Presley. What a broad. Like, there's just no part in most of that story that any of us could truly understand her life. No. It's been a hell of a week researching her life and finding out more about her. When it comes to trash cans, I mean, dude, Danny seems like the ideal ex-husband. I mean, minus the Scientology thing, but yeah. 
I mean, maybe it was trashy at the time, but these two have really lasted the course in a very weird world. Michael Jackson, that's pretty trashy. Mm-hmm. But to Michael Jackson's credit, he was way ahead on that glove thing before all of us were. <laughs> well said. Nick Cage, again, yikes on bikes, three and a half months. Like, wow. Yeah. And the last one, still ongoing, which I'm sure we'll definitely keep updated on that as it's developing when it does on Trashy Tidbits in Patreon. But for trash cans, I'm lumping everything in together. And I am awarding to Lisa Marie Presley a celebrity center full of trash cans and wishing her Aquarius soul all the love and luck in the world going forward as she, I'm sure, will be forging a new path in no time. Bless her little heart. That's Lisa Marie Presley. That's Lisa Marie Presley. Mm. Whoosh. I wonder how these stories where things are on pause are going to sound to us like in a year or five years or whatever. Right. Like it's going to be funny to listen to this at some point in the future and be like, Oh, right. That was, that, that pandemic totally was going on. I remember the pandemic <laughs> back in the olden days Man. when we wore masks both ways up when it was legal to wear masks mm-hmm. to banks. <laughs> anyway, Gen X for life or Joe, we were uh, made for this. We need to draw some, you have your cup. I have my, I know cup. I was about to be like, I guess we're done, but we're not done. No, we have to draw for next week in our Mm -hmm. season six. No rules. I got my cup. Yeah, yeah. I think you go first because you're going to go first. Oh, okay, 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 okay. Uh, Who is in? Ooh. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Beverly Hills. Hmm. That's all I'm saying. My clues just got cagier. Oh, did they? Yeah, we had a lot of, there were, you guys are sleuthy. You're super uh... sleuthy. Who we got? Who oh, we got? yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, oh, I know. That's the guy. The, yeah. Oh. Yeah, we're going to, let's see. His divorce was about as drama-filled as you would expect from someone who came to prominence in the Shonda Rhimes universe. Oh, that's a good clue. I think they'll get that one. I mean, I think. Well, you can be the one that's busted this week instead of me. Yeah. Yeah. Beverly Hills, if you can get it off of that, then you're living in my brain, and we need to have a very different talk. (laughs) All right. Uh, Don't forget, y'all, if y'all have a little extra time, we have a whole link with some free content on it within our Patreon. We do bit.ly slash trashcandyquarantine. We've pulled a lot of content out now for... If you're cool in your heels, waiting to see what happens in the world... We can help you fill some time. Yeah, we've dropped all kinds of good stuff over there, and we'll drop some more stuff this week. And our patrons will naturally get all new, fresh, pipe and hot content. We got a bunch of fun surprises coming up this week. Mm-hmm. Thank you to all of you yep. for tuning in and listening. Yep, we uh, adore you. Until we meet up again, keep, keep it your, trashy, friends. Keep your hands clean and your heart trashy. Clean hands, trashy, trashy hearts. Heart. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacy and Alicia. 
with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at CarbonMade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram and definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at TrashyDivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at TrashyDivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at Patreon.com slash TrashyDivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear. Want to advertise with us? Reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information. And last but not least, come play with us on social media. I keep most of our Trashy Divorces Instagram hopping. Stacy and I share it up over on Facebook, including our Trashy Divorces podcast discussion group. Come join us over there and thanks again everybody for listening. Keep it trashy y'all.